Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. A few months ago, a guy in California was house-sitting for his parents, and when he discovered a black widow spider, tried to kill the spider with a blowtorch. Well, what are the walls blow, of the blowtorch? Yes, well, one of the walls of the home caught fire and ended up destroying a large part of his parents' home. Mm. The guy managed to escape from the house unharmed, and we'll just assume he was successful at killing the spider. You know the term arachnophobia, Peter? Yep, I know that. So fear of spiders. Okay, so it's justified, I guess, burning down your parents' house. (laughs) You got a bad case of it, I guess. I don't know if he had a bad case of it or not. I just thought this was a good segue into this topic of arachnophobia. Okay, okay. Even though most species of spiders you find in your home are harmless to humans, I read that around 55% of women and 18% of men experience a fear of spiders to some degree, right? Maybe not full-blown arachnophobia, but, you know, I give out a little screech when I'm surprised by a relatively large spider walking around in our home. It's, It's really not a screech. It's more like, Peter, get over here now, like a loud demand. Now, of course, we wouldn't try to kill it with a blowtorch. In fact, we don't kill any spiders ever, whether in our home or not. Peter picks them up with whatever and relocates. Yeah, I've talked about that with a tarantula once in our living room and my lacrosse stick. I got a little technique going on there. You do. Great technique. A few years back in Portland, Oregon, a woman claims a spider dropped down from her rearview mirror, which caused her to lose control of her car, which went off the road rolling it over into a ditch, and ended up totaling the car. Fortunate for the driver, she only suffered a minor scratch on her hand, and the little arachnid that was blamed for the crash was nowhere to be found. Hmm. Now, truly, I don't know how I would react if a spider or snake or whatever dropped on my lap while driving. Would I be calm, like if it were a piece of cookie I was eating dropping on my lap? I don't think so, but I could see me being quite distracted. Your story reminds me of when I was a young driver, maybe 17, 18 years old. I was on the on the highway and a bird came out of nowhere and crashed into one of my headlights. And, Aww. you know, I just saw blood and feathers. And, and it was really shocking as a young driver to know what to do. I fortunately didn't lose control and pulled over and looked around there and just saw the evidence of the unfortunate crash. But it could be really distracting. Hey, the spider drops in your lap, what would you do? Shoo them over to your lap? I don't know. (laughs) In October of 2017, a study showed that fear of spiders and snakes may be innate. In other words, they were trying to determine if babies are born with a fear of spiders. Researchers found that at six months of age, infants responded with more alarm to pictures of spiders than to flower images. In certain conditions, snakes also elicited more of an alarm response than fish. So is it hardwired at birth? I don't know. The researchers noted studies on toddlers suggest maybe the toddlers are not fearful of spiders or snakes. Maybe it's just alertness. If the predisposition for alertness is hardwired, they say, it's likely not an innate fear. It's more like a tendency that when mixed with negative interactions or cultural messages about snakes and spiders can easily lead to fear. So it really wasn't conclusive of anything. Also, a study in 2016 showed that people who fear spiders tend to perceive them as larger than they actually are. Oh, that's good. That makes sense. When we had the tarantula walking around our house, I think it's I like remember a five it to be tarantula. Right, almost as large as one of our cats. Spiders look bigger if you're afraid of them. One of the researchers said 
Quote, we found that although individuals with both high and low degrees of arachnophobia rated spiders as highly unpleasant, only the highly fearful participants overestimated the spider size. What do you got there, Peter? Oh, a little story about a drug detection dog and cruise ships. Mm. Uh, This dog is three-year-old golden named Jake. And Jake was working the passengers waiting to board the Norwegian Epic cruise ship. This is a real big one. Many of the cruisers were attending the electronic music-themed part of this cruise. Anyway, he alerted, meaning he detected something. Then he was noted to become a little wobbly off balance and then had some kind of seizure event. That's how it was described. And uh, he looked like he was in bad shape. He was given Narcan. They didn't really know what it was. Ultimately, he recovered and he was fine. The person he alerted on was found to have ecstasy and amphetamines as well as other drugs, not opioids. So the Narcan, which is really an opioid antagonist, was not in effect there. Uh, But about a dozen other people were arrested trying to board the ship, this electronic music theme cruise. So we're glad Jake is okay. And it is a reminder that in this world where fentanyl is everywhere and it's super potent, that uh, our working dogs are at risk. Yep, you bet. There's a really heartwarming video featuring a young woman named Haley Fuqua. She is working as a shelter volunteer in Oklahoma. She's a college sophomore at Oklahoma State University, and she gets bonded with this dog. She's visiting frequently there named Rambo. He's in a shelter. He's about 70 pounds, reported to be a mixed breed of some sort. Looks like a pit bull to me. And she really wants this dog for Christmas. Parents say, no, you have to wait till you graduate. Well, the video starts with her father holding the dog outside of the door of the house. And the dog is wearing like Christmas antlers, like it's a little gift. And they call Haley out and she can't believe her eyes and takes her a couple of seconds to realize what's happening, that this dog is going to be hers. And uh, the family has adopted the dog out for her. And uh, now the dog is hers. And she's asking, is this mine? And it's just so sweet. And she is so... Oh, she's crying hysterically oh, and out she's of happiness. so happy. And, oh. and you, I it's chal- yeah. challenge anyone to look at this and not sort of get teary-eyed, even thinking about it. It's just so sweet. It's so sweet. So This is the dog she totally connected with at the shelter. And her parents said no. And all of a sudden, here you go. What a sweet story. It is sweet. Yeah, I cried. Here's another cute story. A landlord decided to rent out his studio apartment in the Bay Area to two cats. So this all started when a young gal went off to school starting as a freshman and couldn't take her two cats to the dorms at the university. And apparently her father's fiance brought in a dog and that dog and the cats didn't get along. So the father looked for a temporary solution. And there you have it. The landlord says, quote, the cats mind themselves, don't complain. And the $1,500 per month rent comes on time. The space comes with a bathroom and a shower as well as an Apple TV, but it doesn't have a kitchen. You see the cats hanging out on their cat tree looking pretty darn comfortable in their studio apartment. The landlord feeds the cats every day and the the guardian, the, the student, visits when she gets breaks from school. What do you think of that? I love that idea. That's great. Yeah. Laura, you know the car brand Subaru. They do like their dogs, and they are very a dog-oriented company. They like teaming up with dogs. Yeah, I love their commercials. It always includes like a what looks like to be a rescue dog and shows their cars to be dog-friendly. Yeah, well, 
at the 2019 Detroit Auto Show. That is this weekend. They are partnering with the Michigan Humane Society in an adoption event, the first that they've done together to find homes for pets in the metro Detroit area. Adoptable dogs will be available on the first weekend of the auto show. And the media manager of the Michigan Humane Society, her name is Anna Chrisman. She said, we are so grateful to Subaru of America for inviting us to be part of this great event. The opportunity to showcase our animals and highlight the work we do in such a unique space is something our team is really looking forward to. I think it's pretty interesting. Why not? And I'm looking forward to seeing how the car people react to having the dogs there. I think it's going to be good. Yeah, I think it's great. Besides having the adoptable dogs there, the attendees will be given a chance to make rope toys as a donation to the shelter. So you can sit down and make a little project. And also they will be able to create custom pet tags using the Subaru Loves Pets engraver. Alan Bethke, he is the Senior Vice President of Marketing of Subaru of America. He said that partnering with organizations like Michigan Humane Society reinforces our commitment to keeping all animals, especially those in shelters, happy and increasing their overall chance of finding safe, loving homes. So I love it. Nice. So you know that emotional support animals come in all varieties. So here's a cute story of an emotional support alligator. A 65-year-old man in Pennsylvania rescued an alligator who was 14 months old at the time and about 20 inches. Now the alligator, named Wally, is three years old and five feet long. He initially rescued Wally with the intentions of Wally being a pet, but what happens is this guy started to suffer from depression after the death of some of his friends, and he was realizing Wally made him feel better. He says Wally, quote, took care of the problem meaning Wally helped him with his depression. So we got Wally registered as an emotional support alligator. And after a month-long training program, he's housebroken and now lives in a 300-gallon pond in the living room. And the guy <laughs> takes Wally to schools and educational events and senior centers in his community. And the alligator is helping, or he's claimed to be helping others, including children with special needs. And although the alligator never tries to bite or attack anyone, this guy gives sound advice to people that you have to be very careful with him and advises against keeping alligators as pets in their homes, which is great advice that people need to hear. No exotic animals as pets, because otherwise they see this guy with an alligator, and then before you know it... I want an alligator. Right, I want an alligator. I want two alligators. I know. I even want an alligator as a pet. No, with our cats and dogs, there's just not enough room on our bed for another animal. And I don't want to have to build a pond in my living room. Boy, I hope that continues to be a happy story. I guess this alligator is going to continue growing. I know, at three. When does the alligator stop growing? Stop growing. <laughs> Lori, it's the one-year anniversary of China's ivory ban. Remember that? Yep. Well, it's going pretty well, and ivory is illegal to uh, sell in the country. However... The authorities are finding that Chinese tourists still are purchasing ivory as souvenirs when they go to neighboring countries. Mm. So now they're trying to counter that and a coalition consisting of China Customs and their National Forestry and Grasslands Administration, along with Wild Aid and World Wildlife Fund, they are working on a national campaign to remind travelers that their souvenirs could be contraband. A popular Chinese actor, Wan Xuan, he is appearing dressed as a customs officer in this campaign, and he's telling travelers that when they purchase wildlife products, that these purchases may be contributing to the extinction of those very animals. So don't bring ivory into the country. 
the main sources of the ivory products are Thailand and Hong Kong. Also, more outlets in Laos are selling new ivory items to meet the Chinese demand, which apparently is still present to a degree. But still, it sounds like they're making real progress there. So congratulations to everyone. Okay, thanks, Peter. Don't go away. More with animals today right after the break. February is National Pet Dental Health Month. So let's talk about that. Brushing your dog's teeth is a little like the way people view flossing their own teeth. You know, it's important, but you never really do it often enough. Maybe you're more disciplined than I used to be about brushing your dog's teeth, but when you had to watch your dog go through painful dental extractions, not to mention the sting of pain for those extractions, it's easier to get motivated and sustain a good oral hygiene regimen, however tedious it may be. Josie was a wonderful, sweet dog, the second dog Peter and I had together. I first spotted Josie during one of my morning runs, way back in the early days of our marriage when my knees were happy to run five to seven miles at a time. And so as I was running past a public golf course in my area, I spotted her sitting by the maintenance area. It was easy to tell that she didn't really belong there, and automatically I diverted my run toward her and struck up a conversation with one of the employees. I learned that this dog, who might have had some collie and shepherd in her, but looked mostly like a tamed wolf, had been hanging around the golf course for a few days and was being fed scraps of food by the workers. No one knew where she came from, and no one seemed to care much what would become of her, so our meeting was fortuitous, to say the least. I ran home, got in my car, drove back to the golf course, and with not much difficulty was able to coax this scraggly, long-haired, dirty dog into my car. Of course, there was no collar, and we learned later there was no microchip either, but now she was my responsibility, and by extension, Peter's. But I have to tell you, even as I was driving her home, I had a feeling that Josie might become our newest family member. That's how precious she seemed to me at the moment. She knew she could trust me. We had her evaluated the next day after spending the night quietly quarantined in our extra bedroom. Our family vet found that she had two previously broken legs and an injured snout. It was so heartbreaking and infuriating to realize that this gentle being had been so badly abused. But there was more. The vet also determined that she had multiple abscess teeth and suggested we see a dentist, which we did a few days later. By that time, Josie had indeed become part of our family. After a good grooming, she was stately and a real beauty. Paco, our Doberman Shepherd mix at the time, accepted her at once, as did Peter, who was starting to realize what it's going to be like being married to a dog and cat rescuer. And this all occurred early in our marriage in its first year. Fortunately, Peter has stuck around for many subsequent animal adventures. But back to the dentist, who regrettably confirmed that many of Josie's teeth needed to come out. The procedure occurred shortly thereafter, leaving her with only about half of her teeth remaining in a sore postoperative course. But she seemed to quickly heal up, and as far as we could tell, she never really missed her teeth. Josie lived six more years with us, well into her teens. We were so grateful to have her be part of our family for so long, and what a wonderful chance to save this dog from who knows what. 
But thinking back about how she must have suffered with her mouth filled with abscesses still saddens us. And even to this day, it somehow motivates us to keep up with the oral hygiene with whatever dogs we have in our family. So, most authorities recommend daily brushing, and I'm not going to restate too much of what is readily available to anyone who does a little research, but daily brushing is the main thing you can do to promote good dental hygiene. Now, concentrate on brushing the outside and the chewing surfaces, and don't really worry much about the inside surfaces as the tongue keeps those clean. And if your dog is new to this, start gently and don't try to get it all done the first time around. And you might want to start with your finger, like just put a little peanut butter or cream cheese on your finger and gently massage the teeth and gums of your dog. Make sure to use dog toothpaste. Now, this is very important. Do not use regular human toothpaste for your dog. Most human toothpaste include fluoride, which is extremely poisonous to dogs. And in addition, a lot of toothpaste contain the sweetener xylitol, which is also poisonous for your dog if ingested. You can find toothpaste formulated for dogs at Petco or PetSmart. And just keep up with it and make it part of your routine. A little treat afterwards is certainly helpful. Our dogs simply like the chicken or peanut butter toothpaste we've been using, and that seems to be reward enough to keep them coming back the next time around. Our latest pit rescue, Skye, is not too fond of the process yet, but she's coming along. One trick Peter discovered as we were introducing her to brushing would be to wait until we came back from a long walk or after a tiring session of ball fetching. Skye's much more inclined to sit still for the procedure while recovering or resting after a decent amount of exercise. And of course, as you know, early intervention for your dog, should he or she show any signs of mouth problems or disease, is really important for so many reasons. And things you would look for might include yellow or brown tartar that forms a crest along the gum line, teeth that appear to be misaligned, missing teeth or chipped teeth or loose teeth, your dog stops eating or stops chewing on favorite toys, bleeding gums or red inflamed gums, any unusual appearance to the mouth such as growths or bumps, compulsive nose licking or excessive drooling, and finally, if your dog develops bad breath. Now, a lot of people think it's normal for dogs to have bad breath. Not true. I mean, it might not smell like a bed of roses, but a foul smell coming from your dog's mouth might signify serious health risk with the potential to damage not only your pet's teeth and gums, but its internal organs as well. So if any of these problems are observed, a trip to the vet is definitely warranted. When it comes to keeping our dogs healthy, many owners overlook the importance of oral hygiene. According to the American Veterinary Dental Society, 80% of dogs will develop some form of oral disease by the age of three. 80% of dogs will develop some form of oral disease by the age of three. Keeping on top of your pet's dental health has lasting positive effects. Some studies suggest that maintaining oral health can add up to five years to your pet's life. So February is National Pet Dental Health Month, so now is the perfect time to call your veterinarian and schedule a dental checkup for your furry family members and try to begin the routine of brushing your dog's teeth two to three times per week. Don't go away. More great stuff right here on Animals Today.
it's Dr. Lori Kirshner with the Animals Today Minute. Are you a rabbit person? Ever wonder if your family would enjoy living with one or more of these fun, furry, lovable animals? Well, first you got to do your homework. Rabbits need safe indoor spaces free from electrical wires they can chew. But chew they will, so you'll need to provide them with safe, chewable toys and keep them away from any furniture you like. Rabbits will learn to use the litter box. Use positive reinforcement to train them to do so. And you will need to provide a healthy diet for your rabbits. But it's easy. Mostly hay, some leafy greens, and some rabbit pellets. Rabbits should be fixed to decrease marking, lessen aggression, and give them longer, happier lives. And of course, when you're finally ready, make sure to adopt and not to buy your new family member. Just check out one of the many rabbit rescue organizations to find one or more rabbits that have the right personality for your family. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Back to the show. We are going to be speaking today about animal hoarding. And uh, what sparked this is a recent law review article on the topic. We have talked about animal hoarding before, many years ago, before the publication of the DSM 5, which gives hoarding disorder its own entry. Our guest is Courtney Lee, professor at McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento, where she wears many hats, including teaching animal law. The article is titled, Never Enough Animal Hoarding Law. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So what is your interest in animal hoarding? Why is this something you've written about? Well, I started teaching animal law several years ago, and there was a a small section of the book that discussed animal hoarding. And it it was rather short, and I just, I was intrigued after teaching the course, and I went to look look further. And upon finding that there was such a high recidivism rate, I became even more interested. And just the more I dug, the more interesting it became. So that's what led to the article. So one thing that we should do at onset is distinguish hoarding of objects from animal hoarding. So if you can give us a overview of that, please. Sure. So there are overlapping tendencies between both object hoarding and animal hoarding. And some people hoard both objects and animals. They they aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, However, one of the main differences between object hoarding and animal hoarding is the impact of animal hoarding. They can be much broader and more widespread than object hoarding. For example, animal hoarding obviously harms the animals themselves, which can number into the hundreds. So that's hundreds of sentient beings that are being harmed and neglected. But also, animal hoarding can result in harms to neighbors and the community, as well as to the hoarder, him or herself. For example, animals will often, in large quantities, when they are not cared for properly, emit 
odors that will be unpleasant for those living nearby or in the actual structure. Um, ammonia from urine could cause major respiratory difficulties. Also, uh, large quantities of animals living together are more prone to produce more zoonotic diseases. And whether those diseases are airborne or perhaps get into the water supply somehow, it can have a wide-ranging impact on the community. This is in contrast to object hoarding, which often focus, you know, anyone can hoard anything, but often the objects are newspapers, mail, bags, clothing, etc., that really could pose harm to the actual hoarder, him or herself, but aren't as detrimental to the surrounding communities and certainly not to animals unless that person also hoards animals. Is there something about the underlying psychology that's been identified between those who hoard objects and animals? There are some underlying um, psychological issues that are common to both object hoarding and animal hoarding. I'm certainly not a scientist, so I don't profess to be an expert in that area, but I know that often hoarders have the same obsessive-compulsive disorder tendencies. Um, They may have um, ADD issues as well. Underlying especially animal hoarding, but also to some extent object hoarding, is just the underlying compulsion to control the hoarder's objects and or animals. That also can be why um, animal hoarders often are found with carcasses of animals that have passed away in their care because they have this compulsion to control and Unlike objects, animals don't last forever. Arguably, some objects don't either, but animals certainly do not. And often the hoarder is unable to let go of that physical remains of the of the animal that he or she has lost. So there are many cases where animal hoarders will be found living with hundreds of living and dead animals mm. in their care. You write about three main types of animal hoarders. Can you go through those? It's interesting that there are now discrete categories identified. Yes, absolutely. And again, not every hoarder falls exactly into one category versus the others. There are some that overlap between categories. So first of all, there are what are known as overwhelmed caregivers. This is often the the type of hoarder that's portrayed in the media more more often than not. Overwhelmed caregivers mean well. They they might start with just one or two animals. Um, maybe someone drops off a, a stray or a litter of kittens or puppies or, or other animals. And the overwhelmed caregiver means well, is trying to take care of them. They might The hoarder might not spay or neuter the animals properly and the animals reproduce and it just becomes overwhelming to that person, hence the term overwhelmed caregiver. Often these overwhelmed caregivers are amenable to help, and, and if anything, they might even welcome intervention from agencies that want to step in and help them and help the animal. They are not very combative, typically speaking, and they are less likely to go back to their old hoarding ways once there has been intervention. The next category of animal hoarder is known as the rescuer hoarder, and this is one that that is that can overlap a lot with overwhelmed caregivers. The rescuer hoarder might start as an overwhelmed caregiver, but if left to continue without any kind of assistance, might lapse into this rescuer hoarder category, which is someone who ultimately becomes 
delusional to the point that he or she believes that he or she is, is the only individual that can save these animals, the, the savior who, who is the only one who can provide proper care, even though in reality the hoarder is not providing proper care at all. The rescuer hoarder might begin by taking in animals and attempting to find them homes. Often that will devolve into determining that no other adoptive homes are good enough, and then that balloons into the delusion I just mentioned, where the rescuer hoarder believes that he or she is the only possible savior for these animals, and then the compulsion grows stronger, and they acquire more and more, and it just, again, balloons out of control. The third main type of animal hoarder is a lot more nefarious, and that this is someone known as the exploiter hoarder. There's one individual who came up in a lot of my research that typifies the exploiter hoarder. Um, this woman is, is named Vicki Kittles, K-I-T-T-L-E-S. She has left a trail of um, destruction and, and harm in multiple, I think it might have been like five different states. She, like like the typical exploiter hoarder, is very, um, very savvy, very manipulative, and very familiar with the legal system. So even though she has been in court many, many times and even gone to prison, jail, um, she is able to manipulate the system, get out, and then go right back to hoarding once again. And again, I'm just using her as an example who came up in a lot of my research, but there are other examples as well. Um, exploiter hoarders, I think, tend to be less common than, for example, overwhelmed caregivers, but they do exist with enough um, frequency that they merit their own category. And then, of course, there are overlapping types and then some somewhat introductory hoarding types, if you want to call it that. They are uh, the introductory kind of early onset hoarding stages are called incipient hoarding and breeder hoarding. And incipient hoarders may have animals and meet the minimum required standards of care, even if only barely, but are dangerously close to, to slipping underneath that line. Um, and then often they might warp into um, overwhelmed caregivers. And breeder hoarders are to be contrasted with legitimate animal breeders who have legitimate organizations that do take care of their animals. Breeder hoarders um, breed animals for show or sale, and they continue to breed the animals even though conditions deteriorate and even though it becomes clear to an outside observer that they are not meeting minimum standards of care. If someone is to encounter an incipient hoarder or a breeder hoarder, if that person is able to intervene or that agency is able to intervene at that point, then it's a benefit to all involved because it can keep the the incipient or breeder hoarder from ballooning into a rescuer hoarder or overwhelmed caregiver or unfortunately an exploiter hoarder. You write that animal hoarding is widespread. Uh, do we have a handle on specific numbers? Do we have estimates on how common this is? Well, in the United States alone, there are incidents ranging from about 700,000 to 1.4 million um, hoarding cases. And that's not just animal hoarding, but hoarding in general. And many of those presumably are animal hoarding cases. But I didn't find any data specifically regarding animal hoarding itself. 
but it is a widespread problem and it affects not only the United States, but also other countries as well. I've read cases. Um, there's a famous case from Sweden of a woman who hoarded 150 swans in a one-bedroom apartment. There are cases in other European countries and Canada and elsewhere as well, but it is a widespread problem. We're speaking with Courtney Lee, a law professor from McGeorge School of Law about animal hoarding. And being that she is a professor of law, when we come back, we're going to be delving into the law just a little bit so we can understand how complex and uh, challenging it is to deal with these cases. You're listening to Animals Today. Every day in our community, countless animals are starved, beaten, and abused by people. And sadly, most of these cases go unreported, and the abusers get away with it. And in many cases, someone knew about the abuse, but did not report it. So if you see someone hurting an animal, or even if you just suspect something, call the police or animal control right away. Animal abuse does not just mean physically abusing an animal. Neglecting animals can be just as bad. So if you see your neighbor's dog being underfed, left without water, or tied up in the backyard without protection from the elements, it is important to report that too. In many cases, you don't even have to give your name, and your phone call may save an animal's life. Also, we know that many violent and abusive adults got their start by first abusing animals. It's true, people who harm animals often turn their violence against other people, and that is a cycle we need to break. Remember, animals can't speak out for themselves, so reporting animal abuse can save lives. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with law professor Courtney Lee about animal hoarding. And let's talk a little bit about the law. Uh, Courtney, you point out how complex it can be to handle these cases in your article. There are multiple agencies. There's law enforcement. There's animal welfare concerns. There's mental illness. There are all the professionals related to that. It's a big and expensive undertaking to handle these cases, isn't it? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, there are multiple agencies that that could and arguably should become involved in hoarding cases, um, animal welfare agencies, social service agencies, perhaps even child or adult protective service agencies, and law enforcement, um, as well as environmental agencies, especially in animal hoarding cases that can impact the the environment around the, the hoarding situation. Um, if these agencies are able to work together to formulate a, a plan for intervention and assistance for the hoarder, then it can positively impact the recidivism rate, which at this point is close to 100%. Um, most hoarders, once even once their properties are cleaned and they are um, quote-unquote helped um, and quote-unquote cured, as the case may be, they almost inevitably will go right back to their previous hoarding ways. So it's important for all of these agencies to be involved and to treat the actual hoarding disorder and not just 
the symptoms of cleaning the property and rehoming the animals because it's bound to just happen once again after that point. Um, some overwhelmed caregivers may not be so inclined to begin hoarding once again, but most hoarders are are suffering under a compulsion, and they will. The, the old adage is that a hoarder will stop and pick up an animal on the way home from the courthouse. So it is important to involve all of these agencies, and, and they may have some competing concerns, but if they work together, they can find a compromise. So, for example, a wealth, an animal welfare agency may have their their main focus on taking the animals and rehoming the animals, whereas a social social service agency may have their main focus on the well-being of the hoarder, him or herself, and may not want to have the animals removed because it will traumatize the hoarder. But again, if they work together, they can find compromises that that can really help address the underlying issues. What states or communities are doing a particularly good job in managing these hoarding cases, and what does that look like? Well, there are some, uh, there are more localized agencies than state and certainly federal agencies. Um, There are a couple that I found in my research, um, San Francisco and and Fairfax, Virginia, have some very um, successful hoarding task forces. They aren't specifically animal hoarding task forces, but they do um, help animal hoarding situations as they arise. Um, They... Again, they coordinate agencies, they work together, they intervene and try to prevent that hoarder from going back to his or her previous ways. But as you mentioned, it is a very resource-intensive and time-intensive endeavor. It, can, it should actually last for years that the agencies would monitor the hoarder and make sure that the hoarder is not slipping back into previous compulsions. Um, there is one state so far, Illinois, of which I know, who that has enacted a a law that is actually it has criminalized animal hoarding specifically. Um, although criminal interventions are not always the best interventions in a hoarding case, perhaps in a in an aggressive exploiter hoarding case, a criminal intervention might be warranted. But for a an overwhelmed caregiver who is amenable and wants help, then criminal prosecution is probably not the best option. So again, it's important for all of these agencies to work together to evaluate the hoarder as an individual and to tailor treatment accordingly. There, there are local ordinances, and it's, it's often it's easier to pass a local ordinance than it is to pass a state law or certainly a federal law. Yeah. Um, I advocate in my article that there should be a generalized, uniform definition of animal hoarding because a lot of these ordinances define animal hoarding differently, and that results in different interventions, different treatments. Um, if the if the United States, for example, were to adopt one definition of animal hoarding, that would then increase the possibility of uniformity in treating the disorder. Um, I advocate for animal hoarding to be included as a definition in the DSM-5. The, you will probably remember the the name of this better than I, but I think it's the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual for Mental Disorders. Um, it's pro- it's produced by the American Psychiatric Association, and it does list 
object hoarding as a separate disorder, which is recent for this new edition of the manual. But if it also were to list animal hoarding separately, then that would allow greater uniformity in treatment. It, it wouldn't necessarily solve the problem in and of itself, but it's a step in that direction. Um, I also mentioned that it might be nice to include animal hoarding within the Animal Welfare Act, which is the only federal law that is enacted to protect animals. However, um, I think that's a little uh, anticipatory. I don't know that, that that's really going to happen anytime soon. Um, the Animal Welfare Act has been around for a while, been amended many times, and, and I doubt that that's going to be very high on the list of priorities for the Animal Welfare Act. But I think including a definition in the DSM-5 is, is one start. And also looking into different types of intervention for hoarders is vital. Um, I mentioned um, collaborative justice rather than just criminal intervention or just civil intervention. Sometimes involving law enforcement isn't necessary at all or even productive at all. Um, but thankfully, prosecutors in the criminal law system have discretion as to what they prosecute or don't prosecute. So with more local and state laws to help guide them, um, hopefully then that will, again, lead to more uniform um, assistance for hoarders. But because it is such a huge problem and because the recidivism rate is so very high, it is important for agencies um, states, cities to communicate with one another, to share information, and to try to work toward a more uniform method of treatment because this kind of hodgepodge is not helping. We've been speaking with Courtney Lee. Her article is Never Enough Animal Hoarding Law. I was able to review this free online, so it's easy to uh, find if you want to really get more detail about this. Courtney, thank you very much for sharing your research with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. And thanks for listening. This is Dr. Peter Spiegel encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Our dogs have been sporting their new leash and collar sets from the popular pet brand UpCountry. Known for their stylish and quality products, UpCountry has over 100 beautiful designs within their dog and cat category, including matching leashes, collars, and harnesses to give your companion that put-together look. We chose geometric pattern designs for our dogs, Cosmo sporting good vibrations from the Trends collection and Sky wearing Aztec blue from the West Village collection. And I have to tell you, we truly get frequent compliments and questions about their leashes and collars. Construction is with high tensile strength nylon webbing, and we have found them to be quite durable and easy to wash. So check them out. Up country. We love them.